Our reading this morning is from Psalm 19. Psalm 19. So Psalm 19 has the heading, The law of the Lord is perfect. To the, to the commission... Oh, do you want to read that? To the commissioner of psalm of praise. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day points out, pours our speech and out night to night reveal knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words are the, to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sky, for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. The its rising is from the end of the heaven, and its circuit to the end of two of them, and there is nothing hidden from them. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and righteousness altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, ever much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping Keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Disclare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep me, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, the innocent of great transgression. Let the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Love you to keep your Bible open there if you can at Psalm 19 as we think about this lovely passage of Scripture together. And let's just pause in prayer as we come to God's Word. Lord God, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your Word and open our hearts to receive it and to respond to what you want to say to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Human beings are remarkable communicators. We're compulsive communicators. Uh, my youngest granddaughter is one, and she doesn't talk yet. But that doesn't mean she doesn't communicate. Um, smiles, crying, whinging, squirming. Uh, her own little chatter. Uh, she's an endless communicator. One day she'll voice her first words and we and her mum and dad will be proud of her. And we should be because actually no one will sit down with her with a textbook and teach her vocab and grammar. She won't have to memorise vocab lists. She'll just pick it all up and she will start to say a word and then a sentence and she'll be a compulsive communicator and she'll speak with her parents' accent. Long after her first words, she will 
live in a world saturated with communication. Texts and emails and movies and radio and flyers and endless messages in our world, constant communication. Important words, trivial words, true words, false words, endless communication. How come we are so communicative? Even uncommunicative people are communicative. The silent treatment is powerful communication, isn't it? Well, I think the Bible gives us a good reason for our compulsive communication. And that is we have been made in the image of a highly communicative God. God is the ultimate communicator. The Bible begins with God speaking, like it's verse 3 of the Bible, I think, and God said. And from that point on, what God says with words, he does. His words are life-giving. His words act. They do things. His words are powerful. With words, he blesses. With words, he curses. And his words call for response. They demand, actually, that we say something back. And what we say back to God shapes our relationship with God. You might say nothing back. (laughs) That shapes your relationship with God. You might say back words of anger or doubt or disagreement, or love, trust, words of adoration and worship. So, do you hear God speak? And do you speak back to God? I want us to think about those Two things as we look at Psalm 19, because Psalm 19 is a psalm about communication. It speaks of two powerful ways God speaks to us. The voice of creation and the voice of Scripture. And then thirdly, it speaks of the voice of response the way we might speak back to God. Three powerful voices. First of all, the voice of creation. The voice of creation. Uh, It's a psalm. That means it's a song. And so as David strums the uh, first chord on his lyre, you need to kind of imagine yourself in a Middle Eastern desert. And you look up into the night sky and it's, crowded with stars because there are no city lights to blot half of them out. Stars, planets, moons, whole galaxies with billions of stars in them. It's beautiful and it's beyond searching out. Even even with modern science, it's beyond searching out. And then after a, a magnificent starry night, Uh, The next morning, the sun rises and it begins its majestic march across the sky. David here 
uh, pictures it as like a bridegroom coming out on his wedding day, majestic, ready to go. Nothing's going to stop him going to meet his bride. And so it, the sun sweeps across the sky. And, and as it rises, Middle Eastern desert, remember, it's gone from a cool, crisp night to hotter and hotter, and that sun, there's no hiding from it. It scorches, it burns, it seeks you out. Uh, Everything's going to be revealed by it. These are the images that David uses at the start of the psalm, and he says, this is all a declaration. Look at it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, no words where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Look at all those communication words, words, speech, proclamation, declaration, universal Across the whole world, every language, no person, no tribe, no nation where this voice of creation is not heard. And what's being preached by creation? Verse verse 1 says it, doesn't it? The glory of God. It's all a display of his majesty, his power, his glory. His splendor. That's why when we see lovely things in creation, we, we so often just intuitively say, isn't that beautiful? Look at a sunset. Look at a waterfall. You, you look at, at dew on a leaf or an insect or an animal. You say, wow, isn't that majestic? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that fantastic? Yes, it is, because it's, it's God communicating something about himself. The vastness of the ocean is a statement about God. The power of a tornado is a statement about God. The, the gentleness of a dewdrop is a statement about God. We're, we're meant to look at all that and realize there is somewhere a glorious, beautiful, splendid God. If you're um, poking around in the back shed and it's a mess in there, it's dusty and dirty and there's all this junk piled up, but you stumble across a, a painting, an old painting, and it's got spiders and insects creeping all over it. You don't, you don't say, oh, how magnificent. The spiders have produced a painting. Thank you, oh spider. No, you, you, know, you know it's not from spiders and insects. You know that a painting is the work of an artist. You might take that painting away and and find out about it. And, and maybe you find out it's the work of a great artist. You've been sitting on a treasure in your dirty, dusty shed. And so it is when we look at creation, we're, we're meant to see this, this isn't just lucky. This isn't just the, the, the fallout of random processes. This is an artwork. This is a magnificent artwork. Behind this great artwork, there must be a great artist. 
And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, everyone should know there is a God. God has borne testimony to himself. He's actually made a loud statement about himself in what he's made. Listen to these words in Romans chapter 1. What can be known about God is plain to people because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, he says, so they are without excuse. Actually, to deny that there is a God, Paul says, is to suppress the truth. The evidence is there. Rather than suppressing the truth, we're to listen to it. We're to listen to the proclamation, the declaration, the voice, the words of creation. That actually means enjoy creation. Enjoy what God has made. Enjoy the beach and the mountains and forests and rivers and sunsets and food and drink. But as we enjoy the things of creation, we're always to lift our eyes to the Creator and see all these things as wonderful gifts, saying something about Him. Are you listening to the voice of creation? Are you hearing day after day, as you look at the world around you, are you hearing God's long, powerful sermon about who he is? Are you reflecting on his sermon? Some of you are taking notes this morning. Good on you. We should constantly be taking note of what God is saying to us in the voice of creation. But here's the thing now. We'll only, we'll only hear the voice of creation if we make the transition that the psalm now makes. There have been six verses about creation. Now there will be five verses about God's written word. We move from the voice of creation to the voice of Scripture. Now, how does David make that move? The, the psalm almost jolts into this next section, but not entirely a jolt. The last bit of the voice of creation is about the sun making its circuit across the heavens, and it says there at the end of verse 6, nothing is hidden from its heat. And it says this. That is the transition into something else from which you cannot hide. Something else that will search you out. Something else of searing heat that will burn into your soul. Something else that will enlighten and expose everything. Something else that will warm you more than the sun will warm you. David transitions from the voice of creation to an even more powerful voice, the voice of Scripture. 
In theological language, he's moving from what we call general revelation, the way God reveals himself generally to all through creation, to what we call special revelation, the way God especially reveals himself through what he has written in the Bible, his word. And the written word is essential. Because whilst the voice of creation can tell us about God's invisible qualities, his power and his majesty and his might, you can at least deduce that and pick it up from creation. Only in the written word will you learn about God's grace and love and saving favor. We can't actually learn enough from creation. We need God's word. In fact, John Calvin uh, said that as we look at creation, we're like, he said, old, bleary-eyed men with weak eyes. That kind of sounds like me. Um, (laughs) Old, bleary-eyed men with weak eyes who can't see without glasses. And Calvin said, Scripture is like glasses that now help us see what we should have seen in creation. To change the imagery, we're deaf to the voice of creation until we put in Scripture hearing aids that help us hear clearly what God is saying. That means Scripture does for us what a day at the beach or a day in the mountains can never do. It's as if in Scripture God comes much closer to us. And you have that even in the language of the psalm. In the first verse it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. But now in the second part of the psalm, it uses God's personal covenant name. The law of the Lord, Yahweh, is perfect. And he uses that name, Yahweh, Lord, again and again and again. The the psalm is beautifully composed, and these next verses are beautifully structured. C.S. Lewis, who is, what was he, English literature professor at Oxford University, so he knows one or two things about language and poetry, Uh, he said, He regarded this psalm as the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. This is is beautiful poetry. Now, you're going to have to excuse a focus on grammar for a few moments. I'm going to talk about nouns, adjectives, and verbs. I'm very sorry, but I'll explain it as I go. Back to school. Nouns. Remember, they name things. And the whole sequence of clauses here where David gives a name for God's word. Look at them. The law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The rules of the Lord. All these are expressions for Torah, law, instruction, 
God's words to his people to show them how to live and tell them the story of redemption and guide them in how to respond to God. And for us, this is not now just the first five books of the Bible. This is, this is the whole of the Bible. This is the whole of Scripture given to us. God speaking to us, guiding us, leading us, instructing us, telling us our story. Now, what's the, what's the Bible like? What are the law and the commands and the precepts and the statutes of God like? Is, is the Bible boring, difficult, dusty, old? That's not what David thinks. Now you've got to look at the adjectives. You might remember we're back in primary school. No, actually, probably not back in primary school. We don't do grammar anymore, do we? Um, these words describe things. Okay, we've had these names for God's word. Now, how are they described? Look at it. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The command of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. Are they beautiful words? In a world of fake news, in a world where we can sometimes barely bring ourselves to watch the evening news again because it's just going to be blood and violence and oppression and economic disaster and trouble, God's word is pure and right and clean and true. How good is that? What does that do? What does that do for us? Reading good, clean, pure, true stuff. Well, happy days. We're onto the verbs. Remember, they do things, doing things. What, what does the law do? Look at now the last clause of each of these parallel phrases. Revives the soul. Makes wise the simple. Rejoices the heart. Enlightens the eyes, endures forever. So good, hey? Here's something to, to revive you, to enlighten you, to delight you, to feed you. That first phrase, we'll just dig into that one because in a way it, it encapsulates almost all of them, it revives the soul. That's your inner being, your psyche, the deep down inside who you really are. It revives that. God, God's word animates us in our heart, in our soul, in our inner spirit. Our, our culture is constantly pushing us to be true to ourselves, to find ourselves to look inside and, and be real to who we really are. But, but who is the real you that you've got to be true to? Who, who's the real me? Well, if I've got to be true to how I feel, I'm going to be all over the place <laughs> because my feelings are all over the shop. If I and to be true to what I desire, then I'm afraid at least half the time I'm going to be true to something very selfish. I'm not sure that I want to be defined by my passions and my desires. If the real me 
is my sexuality and my gender, as our culture is saying so strongly, then I've been defined by one part of my humanity and I've made one part the whole. And sexuality is a wonderful gift. But to make that everything, to make that the real me, is not to free me, it's to limit me. The Bible offers another story for our souls. Not a story of us finding ourselves within and being true to ourselves, but the story of the true, clean, pure, good word of God reviving us, animating us, renewing us, actually making us something we're not and giving us a new life within. It's the story of God loving sinners, God loving people who are unclean and confused and don't know who they are. How good is that? Even if you haven't got a clue who you are, you don't know what your identity is, that's okay. You come to God with all that mess and confusion, and he says, and my word can begin to revive your soul. Well, when you, when you come to God's word like that, uh, you come to love it as well as appreciate it. More precious than gold. David says, gold, the most valuable metal of the day, more precious than that, sweeter than honey. There was no sugar back in the day. That was the sweetest food you could get. Sweeter than the sweetest food, more precious than the most precious metal. If you're not into sweet food and you don't like honey, I'll give you freedom to pop in there what you do like. God's word is better than the best pizza. It's better than grandma's lasagna. It's the best burger in town. And if you're not into gold, you, you substitute your most precious thing, like God's word. It's better than that new car you've got your, set, you've got your heart set on. It's better than your house. Better than your dirty, great, big TV and the pristine new couch that you don't want anyone to spill anything on. God's word's the best. That's what David thinks. It makes us think about how we approach God's word, how we listen to it, how we read it. As you hear the Bible, as you read the Bible, how do you approach it? Don't approach it as a textbook for information, though it does have a, a bucket of information in there. Don't approach it as an ancient document to analyze. It is that, actually, but it's far more than that. Don't treat it like a dictionary to look up help topics. It actually covers a heap of topics, but it's not mainly a dictionary. And don't treat it as a rule book. It does have a lot of rules, a lot of commands, but it's not fundamentally a rule book. Rather, we are to approach the Bible as God speaking to us. Good, clean, pure, true words to revive us and change us. Approach it hungry for honey or pizza. 
Approach it as precious. Pray as you come to the word. Come with a soul ready to eat, ready to treasure. Hear its words as precious. Even if you have to spend time nutting them out and working them out, hear his words as precious. If you have a new baby, I can actually see one right up here. Hmm. If you have a new baby, that baby is so precious. Hey. Um, you give that baby massive attention. You love it. You protect it. You care for it. It's very precious to you. The Bible is a precious baby. <laughs> so precious. Love it. Attend to it. And it's better than a baby because it's clean and pure <laughs> and right and true. I've just seen what this baby's been doing up here. <laughs> Friends, I, I just encourage you, keep on putting on the spectacles of Scripture. Because through that lens, we see who we are and we see God's world and we see who God is. And that actually leads us then to respond to God. We've had six verses on creation, five verses on the word of God, four verses now on the voice of response. The transition, if you remember, from the first section to the second section was that the heat of the sun searches out everything. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And that actually is really the transition into the third section of the psalm. Nothing is hidden from the heat of God's word. God's word exposes and searches out every nook and cranny of our souls. God knows our souls better than we know ourselves. And David is aware of that. Look at what he says in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. David is aware of sins he's not aware of. And I think we all know about hidden faults, don't we? By very definition, we don't know what they are. We see them in other people. I know a lovely old lady who is actually a compulsive communicator, like she just talks and talks so much. But I also know that one thing that really frustrates her is people who just talk and talk and talk. <laughs> yeah, okay. But we're actually all like that, aren't we? So easily blind to our own faults. Sometimes we're blind not because our sin is so small, but because it is so familiar. Our conscience might be clear, but that doesn't make us right and pure. Our conscience is corrupted as well. So we have to ask God to search our hearts, to know us. We have to let his word shine light on our souls and show us what's really there. In the law of God that David has just been reflected on, it, it talked about what to do about unintentional sin. In Numbers 15, for example, you can find a whole passage there about the sacrifices to offer for unintentional sin. But that chapter, Numbers 30, also talks about, sorry, Numbers 15, it also talks about 
high-handed sin. It talks about unintentional sin and high-handed sin. First one, you didn't mean it, you didn't even know it. High-handed, totally deliberate. You knew. In the Old Testament, there were sacrifices for unintentional sin and not for high-handed sin. You were to be cut off from God's people for deliberate, willful breaking of God's law. Little wonder that David prays, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. The problem is, I've committed a lot of hidden sin and high-handed sin. I know there's a heap of sin in my life that I'm not even aware of, but there's also stuff that I've done knowingly and willingly and intentionally. Both kinds of sin cry out for the mercy and the grace of God. How can we find that? How can there be forgiveness for hidden faults and high-handed sin? Well, the voice of Scripture gives the answer as it points us to Jesus Christ. The only one, the only human being who's never committed unintentional sin, let alone high-handed sin. Jesus, who walked in innocence, who was blameless before God, whose soul was revived by the will of his Father, who, whose eyes were enlightened, whose heart rejoiced in the Lord. In fact, Jesus, who is, the Bible says, the Word made flesh, a human who, like God's Word, is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true. And in stunning grace, that perfect person picks up all the baggage and filth of our unintentional and our intentional sins. And he endured the wrath of God for it. He took the punishment in full. The heavens declare the, the glory of God's invisible qualities. But the gospel of Jesus Christ shows us the glory of his grace and his love for sinners. So we pray with David, may the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. I think David's offering up the psalm to God, but more than that, he's, he's offering up his life. This becomes our voice back to God. Lord, I, I want to live now a life that's pleasing in your sight. You've shown your glory in the heavens. You've spoken to me so powerfully in your word. You've cleansed my sin through the work of the Lord Jesus. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. May my life give you glory. And I love the, the two words that he uses for the Lord at the end. O oh Lord, my rock 
and my redeemer. A rock you can rely on. A redeemer who saves you. Friends, will you say these kind of words back to God again today? Will this be your voice of response? Will you confess sin? Will you seek God's grace and mercy? And will you offer up your life to the Lord and say, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord? Will will you make that your prayer? And will you call God your rock and your redeemer? Our world's full of communication. But the most important communication is what God says to us in the voice of creation, what he says to us in the voice of his word, and then what he draws back from our hearts as we respond to him. And if you get that communication right, you'll be able to sift so much better all the other communication in our world. And you'll have better words to speak to other people. Let's pray. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer, full of grace and kindness. You've spoken to us so loudly in creation. You've spoken to us in your word and through the work of Jesus. Help us now to give our lives back to you as a free and glad offering. May we be acceptable in your sight because of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. We're going to uh, finish in a moment singing another song about creation, all creation, praising, magnifying God. But as we go uh, into this new week, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Amen. Let's sing together.